Welcome to this podcast from My HR Toolkit, the HR software platform for SMEs. In this episode, based on a recent webinar, our CEO, John Curtis, talks to international speaker and best-selling author, Steve Cockrum of the US-based company, Giant, about the importance of leadership skills in the new normal. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes when they're released. Uh, good morning, everybody. Thanks ever so much for joining us. I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking with Steve and listening to what he has to say. Before we get to the main event, I'm just going to do a little bit of um, introduction on one or two things. So for those of you who don't know, uh, my name's John Curtis. I'm the CEO of My HR Toolkit. We are one of the UK's leading HR software companies. Uh, we have about uh, a thousand, well over a thousand corporate clients across the UK and uh, well over 50,000 people logging in to use our software on a regular basis. And our goal, our vision, is to provide fantastic HR software for SMEs to uh, help you guys grow and to help you guys thrive uh, by um, doing the, the, the admin uh, really, really well. And I know a lot of you already use Toolkit, but that's a brief introduction. Uh, we're not doing a sales seminar today, you'll be glad to hear. Um, so what we have done over the last few weeks during this sort of lockdown period is a series of seminars that should be helping uh, people get through the, uh, the, the COVID period. And uh, if you have a look on our website, you'll find um, some resources that will help you. There are all the previous webinars that we've done. Uh, and also there is a um, resources page with all sorts of stuff on it, which you'll find um, really useful. So uh, today's seminar uh, is we're going to be looking at the the future of leadership and especially within SMEs. There'll be a question session uh, at the end and occasionally one or two times we'll do a poll through the talk. Uh, you don't have to take part in the poll. It's really great if you do. They're anonymous so no one knows what you're saying. It just helps us um, bounce around a little bit on some of the topics that we're talking about. So without further ado, I'd like to uh, introduce you to Steve Cochran. So Steve is a very old friend of mine. He's not very old, but we've been friends for a long time. And uh, he currently is leading uh, a great company called Giant. And it's actually, um, I believe, the fastest growing debt-free company in the US, which is some claim to fame. So um, hi, Steve. Great to talk hi, to you lovely to see you and uh, i'd be grateful if you tell us a little bit about your company and then uh, sure. a little bit about yourself sure thanks so yeah well, sadly we are getting older i think kind of the, the the gray hair is now a universal theme but no thank you for that so giant is a uh, i mean it is what it says on the tin we, we realize that basically how do you describe yourself um if you have to explain what you do after you told your tagline then you probably haven't got the right one so we said that we help organizations build invincible teams on the grounds that basically we believe that team is the primary unit of performance in the new world not talented individuals and we've been really working with organizations all over the world for the last seven years really helping them think through not only how do you build invincible teams at the top but how do you multiply the capacity for invincible teams through large organizations so um, we work with everybody some of those i always put a mix on there so everyone's heard of google and ford but there are other lots of SMEs, lots of mom and pops, little small businesses, anywhere where you have a team, uh, Giant potentially can help. It doesn't really matter how many you have, the dynamics are relatively similar. So, um, and yes, very kind of you, Americans like to brag about their success far more than us Brits, but um, according to Silicon Valley Bank, Giant as a tech business um, is the fastest growing debt-free business in America right now, which um, is quite impressive. For me as an owner, it's great news. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yourself then, Steve. What's yeah. your journey been like? So, um, so what do you need to know about me? Well, I've been, I've been married to somebody called Helen for 27 years. I've been happily married for all of them. Helen for probably about the last 12, um, on and off, I would say. Um, I have three gorgeous girls. So Izzy's 20, Megan's 16, Charlie's been nine this week. So that was a very unexpected blessing in our old age. Um, uh, we have a puppy as well. And... What else do you need to know about me? I mean, in some ways, I have the most accidental resume. Nobody in their right mind would ever have done what I've done. So I was a schoolmaster. I've been a pastor. I've owned a nightclub. I've been an entrepreneur. Um, 
Um, very few people would ever find a variety of things like that. I became a Jedi in human behavior, why people behave the way they do. And then of course, took that knowledge about 17 years ago and began to realize that human behavior was ridiculously predictable. And I wish I'd known it earlier in my life because it would have helped the relationships. And really, I also realized, John, that I was much better as an entrepreneur than I was as a complex organizational leader. I'm great at starting things and birthing things. And I also find that I'm a much better coach, consultant, than I am consistent metronomic drumbeat leader of organizations. So that's, that's kind of a, an overview of me and live just outside London um, in a place called Gerald's Cross, about 40 minutes from Oxford, 20 minutes from Heathrow, 25 minutes from central London and 12 minutes from my golf course. Okay. So golf's obviously a key value. <laughs> it's the only thing I can play without hurting myself now, John. I used to be a proper athlete in years gone by, but sadly, uh, that's the pain, I think, of being 50 years old. Yeah, good. Well, you have my every sympathy on that. <laughs> uh, so leadership in the new normal is what we're mm -hmm. going to be talking about a bit today. And um, I mean, obviously, none of us know what the new normal is going to be. We've got some indicators, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, Leadership is probably what it's always been. Should we, should we start with some thoughts that you have on what leadership is? And I mean, I'm, I'm interested in what's the difference between a leader and a manager, for example? I think you find that people have written theses and uh, various books so, um, on this thing. But if you ask me what my view is, um, I think fundamentally there's a huge overlap. But leaders, in my mind, usually are defining vision and values as the primary task they're doing. I would say if you think of a crosshairs of a target, um, and, and the bullseye is usually where both the vision of what it is we're trying to do and achieve is held in tension with the values of who we choose to be as we live out what our culture is, both in terms of our the way we, we with our own teams, with our clients, with our stakeholders, how do we actually live that integral life that we're called to do. So I would say that leadership is usually on a, um, a, a bigger plane. And I often say that leadership is primarily the role of the, the chief reminding officer. You're reminding people of what we're trying to do and how we're trying to get there. Management is usually then the, in my mind, the actual more to do with how do we manage the strategies that we're, we've decided upon that actually we believe allow us to achieve our vision while we live our values. So managers tend to be more at the implementation end of things, the delivery side, and then managing people's systems and resources to achieve specific strategic outcomes, which if they're aligned well, will actually help us deliver the vision that we've set ourselves as a company. Okay, that's great. Now, I think we've got a poll um, and what I'd like you guys who are listening to do is I'd like you to say whether you think that you feel you are a manager or a leader. Um, this is not a trick question. There's not a right answer uh, or a wrong answer. Uh, it's just out of interest to see what you people feel you are uh, doing in your organization. Are you in a role of leadership or are you in a role of being a manager? Okay, so whilst we're waiting for that, uh, Steve, let's let's keep talking about vision and values just for a second. And we don't spend too long on this, but I, I bet a lot of the organisations who've logged in today don't have a clearly defined vision and values. Um, can is it? I mean, I, I know there's a lot of cynicism about people who, um, uh, when, when you talk to them about vision and values, until they really understand what vision and values are. Okay, so hold on, let's just interrupt that thought for a second. Okay, so 40% leaders, 50% managers, and 12% other. Okay, brilliant. Um, I, I, I assume that, that that's more or less what I would have expected really on, on this seminar. So for those leaders who don't have a vision and values, how important do you think it is, Steve? And, and is, it, is it important for every business or is it just visions that have, uh, you know, idealistic aims and goals like social businesses i think the reality is vision vision and values for me are if you don't know what you're aiming at then you're very unlikely to achieve um what you wanted so vision for me is what does success look like i think it's usually the criteria which people get confused with 
most people have paid an awful lot of money for somebody to come in and define a statement and some values which then sit in the drawer on a you know perspex card and don't do anything so there's cynicism there but i would say to somebody if your vision and values are truly to live your vision is really what does success look like how and how do we know when we get there so it's almost your biggest picture description as as much color and texture as you can okay well what are we trying to achieve vision is really an objective a goal and the more flesh you can put on your vision for um, people the better and values i would probably say john are even more important yeah because um if you don't live your values then basically um you will never i don't believe ever fulfill everything you could do so taking the time not to have a set of values that somebody gives you but a set of values that you as a team organization go, this is how we're going to choose to be with each other. These are the things we're going to value about our organization. Yeah. And then in the end, for those values to live, you actually have to talk them often. So in the end, if, if values are not part of the vocabulary of your everyday engagement, if you don't ask people how they're living them and give examples of it, you'll find that both vision and values soon recede under the, um, the, the incredible amount of work that every one of us is having to do. So leaders, I would say, are constantly reminding people yeah. of what is what are we trying to achieve and, and how are we choosing to do it? Because you can sometimes achieve your vision, but by compromising your values, you don't actually win because you'll find that actually reputation is so important in the new world. Are you a culture? that people actually want to belong to, want to work with, want to engage with. And, and values are the things which are less tangible, but in my mind probably are the most um, important. And I guess a lot of people, they have values, the leaders, whether they've written them down and thought about it or not. It's just that they won't necessarily communicate those values and the people in the teams uh, lower down in the organization might not necessarily understand those values. They'll kind of pick them up by a process of osmosis over time. And I, and I guess values don't always have to be lovely, soft, touchy-feely things, do they? I mean, they can be quite hardcore things like, you know, we value excellence and we're really <laughs> ferocious about it. That could yeah. be a value, couldn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, that's great. Um, so I've learned that, um, that, that a good leader will have a clearly defined vision and values and, and managers will, will understand those vision and values and they'll be... Uh, you know, working with those as sort of a day-to-day -day basis on a sort of a more tactical kind of level. Let, let's think about the current situation uh, and the new normal. I appreciate you don't have a crystal ball any more than anyone else and we're all reading the same newspaper articles and listening to the news and reading the internet. What, what do you think is going to be important about the new normal for SMEs in the coming 12 months? Gosh, I mean, there is the crystal ball question, isn't it? I, I think that, I think that basically, I would say to people is you have to have two strategies happening at the same time. You have to have a survive strategy and a thrive strategy, and that in some ways uh, both will work in tension because you don't really know. None of us fully know what's going to happen when they unwind. You know, this incredible moment where the government is basically paying for everybody. So, I would say to for leaders particularly to go, you have to have a plan for a worst case scenario. So what is your survival strategy, assuming the worst that you think can happen does happen? And do you have actual strategies that sit in that box? Yeah. You also have to have a thrive strategy, which is to say, okay, how are we going to take advantage to the best of our ability of what the new opportunities of the new world will present? Because there are always winners and losers in this time. So flexibility and ingenuity are going to be really important skill sets because i don't know whether we will be able to you know map out a plan for the next three years and just work the plan i think we're going to have to stay agile to use that word we're going to have to stay um in many ways constantly monitoring the data that is coming in data is so important and most businesses are better at that but i would simply say that the new normal is going to require a far greater level of ingenuity and agility. And probably I would, I would say that teams, senior leadership teams will need to have in many ways, contingency planning as well as what we would call offense and defense. So you need a defensive strategy, but you really do need an offensive strategy as well 
because in the end there will be opportunities that present themselves for those who are ready to take advantage of them yeah okay well um, I'm glad you've mentioned um, surviving and thriving I think we've got a little poll on this as well so uh, if you could get that one up Camille and I just want to say to people just remember this is completely anonymous uh, so you're not giving anything away, but I'd like to ask you all whether your business um, is in a in a state of surviving or thriving at the moment. I mean, I think we all know there's an awful lot of businesses are in the. Um, oh, I think we've got slightly the wrong wording on there. That's almost certainly my fault. Um, well, I made up the words, John. I didn't know they're, they're my words, so you can have either of those. They don't mind at all. Okay, well, what, what I'm trying to get at is whether your business is thriving in the current circumstances, because some are naturally thriving, some small numbers of businesses. So if you uh, have, the, if you think of this, if, instead of striving, can you think of that one as thriving, please? And the other one is struggling. I think we all know that a lot of businesses are finding it hard at the moment, but there is, there is, there are businesses out there who are really thriving. So, Steve, you think that, um, there's going to be winners and losers. There's people with businesses that are going to be uh, need to be really agile. What, what would you say to a leader of a business that is struggling at the moment? And uh, I mean, do people have to think in a completely new way? I mean, what if their business is something that really has gloomy prospects for the next 12 months? Do you think that you need to change what you're doing and think it from, from scratch. I mean, what are people supposed to do? I appreciate it's an impossible question, but what are your thoughts about that? I think the first thing you have to do is confront the cold, hard, brutal reality of where we are right now. And I think that's sometimes, um, that's the hardest thing to do because every SME owner I know, usually we're dealing with founders and we're dealing with people who birthed it and it's personal. Um, and that actually you feel very personally responsible for all of the people that you employ and all of those opportunities. So I think it's hard sometimes to ask the real question of going, how viable is what I'm doing right now? And actually ask the worst case scenario questions to go, if this happened, how would we survive? So the hardest thing, and you, this is where I think you see the big corporates being far more ruthless. So if you look at, you know, Rolls-Royce announced yesterday, BA the week before, blah, blah, blah. They're cutting thousands of jobs. And the reason is they're doing it because they want to survive because they don't yet know what the new world will look like. They don't need to cut all those jobs. It's just, you know, they've got more cash on balance sheets in big corporate companies than they've ever had. But what they're doing is they're buying themselves time to actually understand what the new normal looks like. So it's much harder to do that when you know all the people that are on your payroll. But one of the things that you have to do is if you are in a struggling environment where you know that you are burning cash right now, I would say that the hardest thing in the world is to actually give yourself a survival strategy and sometimes to take the difficult decisions to cut costs right into the teeth of the storm. You can always bring people back on yeah. You can you can always do that, but I would say I'm not saying you have to, but if you wanted one piece of advice from me is to actually sit down with your senior leaders, the real stakeholders at the top and go, guys, if this is a worst case scenario, can we buy ourselves time by taking some difficult decisions now? That's really some of those cold, hard, brutal facts which no leader I know ever loves to do. And yeah. the smaller the company, the harder it is to do that. But sometimes you have to make decisions on behalf of the whole for yeah. the future, because in the end, if you do not survive, then everybody ultimately um, is, is out of a job, or at least you don't get all the things you put in over the last few years get lost in the process. That sounds very cold and heartless and crucial, but it's one of those ones, I think you have to ask the difficult questions and be brutally honest at this point. Yeah. Well, I remember, um you know, the fallout, as many of us will, of, from 2008 and the global financial crisis. And uh, I was an employment lawyer for, um, for, for, for 18 years, as you know, and right in the middle of that came the global financial crisis. Um, right, so we got the, the poll results up. 40% of people say they're thriving, 
62% mm. of people say they're struggling. Well, I, I mean, <laughs> I think given the circumstances, I would think that's a pretty a decent proportion, um, really. Um, and I'm glad to see, obviously, that you guys are uh, thriving. Um, yeah, so I, I, I was a lawyer during that period, and I remember, I think probably largely through 2009, I did very little but corporate restructures and redundancies. And um, the sad thing is, I think, the people who didn't make those decisions early on, the people that needed to but didn't make those decisions early on, didn't make it. Mm. And uh, it's a horrible thing to think about. And I know that we've got an awful lot of HR advisors listening in. Some of those are in-company HR advisors. Um, and, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an unpleasant reality to have to think about. And for the business leaders, too, uh, to think that you may need to lose people who are great people, good people. They've been with you a long time. They're loyal. Uh, but to help the company to survive and, and, and adjust to the new normal, it may be, may be necessary to make some changes. Mm. What do you think leaders and managers can do to ensure that they stay healthy mentally during that? Because I know from personal experience, and I remember from 2009, how hard that is for business leaders and for HR people. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, that piece of knowing what reality is. Every single person needs a, a place they can talk out loud that is safe, um, where they can actually get out what they're really feeling, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. I would say one of the most important things for leaders is to have a safe space, usually a person. It, if it is your whole senior team, then great, but it may not be because you actually have to be able to think out loud and say things which are really often deeply unpalatable. So that safe space for what we call discretion and discipline, that the, the, the under pressure, people often break that down, often say discretion discipline is, what do I say, when do I say it, and who do I say it to? And those three questions, I think, become increasingly important because you will talk out loud somewhere. And actually, if you do it in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people, as I've done many times in the past, um, it, it really does, it, it runs very, very quickly. So leaders have to understand the power of their voice and when you even hint at something, it's amazing how that can run through a small organization very, very quickly. So discretion and discipline of what to say, when to say, who to say it to, but have a place, someone, where you can actually really talk out loud about how you feel, about how you're doing, and about the difficult decisions you're having to make, because you can't do this on your own. And, you know, we always say that basically... You can't give away what you don't possess. If you are not healthy, then it's very unlikely that you will multiply your health. So you have to attend to things like your physical well-being. You have to be at your best to make good decisions. And I think a lot of people in, in COVID lockdown, of you know, to have your exercise, to have your sleep, to eat well, give yourself the best chance of making good decisions. Because if you don't care for yourself to some degree in this, it's very unlikely that you will be at your best when you're making some of the most difficult decisions perhaps of your leadership life. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you think everybody should have someone they can talk to. And um, would you say that's a personal friend, a partner, or would you say that's a kind of a business peer? What, what, what's the best for people? So the best, John, um, I would say, if you think of three interlocking circles, so give me the fact I'm always visual, what I'm really looking for is chemistry, confidentiality, and competence, ideally in some person. So I need to know that I, chemistry is, I actually, I like you. I enjoy the relationship we have. If I'm gonna trust the realness of me, I'd really rather not have to repeat it to different people every week. So is the real chemistry where you think that person could be a longer term friend or colleague or peer? Um, chemistry, confidentiality, I think is essential. You have to know as a leader that your words are really powerful and it can't get out in the wrong place. So do you trust that person with confidentiality? And then really competency as well. Is this somebody who is able to really help you shape your thinking and opinions? They don't have to be an expert in the same, you know, whatever your business does. But is it somebody that you believe is at least a peer, if not better than you, in relation to some of the competency issues? Because you're going to want to brainstorm ideas and thinking. 
somebody who can play almost that kind of trusted friend, particularly if it's peer consulting. I love it when it's somebody that I, I can do the same back to them because I get to know what their business is. I know you get to know what their issues are. So, so that would be the thing I would always say is try and find someone where chemistry, confidentiality and competence is in the same person or small group of people, but everyone needs at least one and it can't be your spouse or the person who you live at home with just so you know, because in the end you can try that. And that's what a lot of founders, CEOs do because they haven't got anywhere else to do it. But you'll find that actually it often poisons um, that relationship as well. Um, I speak always as someone from experience rather than somebody who's, um, who made this mistake and at least trying to say, we'll make different ones to the ones I've already made. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Thanks, Steve. We'll, we'll move the conversation on a little bit now. I'd, I'd like to, if you could summarize in a minute or two, we're going to talk a little bit about teams. You mentioned teams a lot when we started. Mm. Um, what, what are the most important things about building teams and, and how has it changed now that we all live remotely? <laughs> I think the remote one first, John, is I think the I think the skill of leading team is still the same skill and building teams. Remote multiplies the tariff of difficulty. So all of the things you used to get away with when you could have some physical proximity and people could actually intuit more of what you meant through the nonverbal communication, or in my case, I could take people to the pub and buy them lunch on a Friday and apologize if I've been a bit of an ass on Tuesday. Um, none of those are available to you. So actually the skill sets of leadership and management are actually having to grow in the remote world because you don't have all the tools you had before. So that's the bad news. In terms of how you build a team, it's impossible to build a team by accident, let alone a really good one. Um, you have to know yourself first. You have to know, well, what are my strengths? What are my challenges if i'm just simply me what happens around me because the real art of um building teams for the new world is they have to be a lot flatter than they perhaps used to be they have to be a lot more collaborative and you have to lead through influence far more than positional power even if you are the founder the only shareholder um, i would say if you're having to force now your opinions through a team using positional power and ownership power you've already begun to undermine your influence and influence is so much more important than it was before. The other thing I'd say is actually your primary job as a leader of teams is to the best of your ability to understand who the people you are leading are, what is it that they actually are by nature naturally gifted to do and how can you create environments where the people you lead as often as possible get to be playing in the things that they are actually naturally gifted at where yeah. you create environments where um, they get to be at their best. You, you will never have an invincible team if you don't have people on the whole using the things that they're actually by nature naturally gifted at. That's right. Yeah. So that, that brings us nicely on to the third and final poll question. So this is about psychometric testing. And I know it's a tool that people use for team building. Um, it's something that, that I did uh, many years ago. Um, I did a, a, a test called a Myers-Briggs test and I, I, I got a little sheet of paper out of it at the end that told me everything about myself uh, that, that I kind of subconsciously knew but hadn't really uh, understood in some ways. And uh, I think for me, it was a massive revelation because I think I was quite young when I did it, but it was, it came as a huge shock how different people were. Yes. And how things that motivated me didn't motivate other people. And, mm. you know, there were some really uh, key things that came out of that. And we'll, we'll just spend a few minutes talking about that. And whilst we're nattering about psychometric testing, mm. uh, could you please guys uh, participate in the final poll and say whether you've ever used psychometric testing? I mean, it says in your organization, but I mean, generally, um, you know, any, it doesn't necessarily need to be in your current organization, whether you've used psychometric testing and whether you found it useful or not. Okay. So Steve, it, you know, we all know what psychometric testing is. You, you, you answer some questions um, and it, it, it comes out with a kind of a scheme of different types and it tells you stuff about yourself 
and it tells you stuff about how you may interact with other types. Um, is psychometric testing important? And, and if so, how do we engage with it? I, and I'm coming from, I know there will be a lot of people who uh, are listening who are cynical about it, yeah. uh, particularly CEOs rather than HR people. Um, there's a lot of cynicism. So what, what, what would you say to that? So I think the first thing you have to do is acknowledge the fact, I always say, whenever I start this, every single person on this call will have been abused by a psychometric test at some point in their life. So somebody will have told them you are a dog, a duck, a badger, a bear, a pink, a white, a blue spot, an ESTJ, an INTP, a seven with a wing and a three, or whatever it is that is particular poison that has been done to you. So in the end, I would say I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of them, but when they're done well, so fundamentally, um, any form of psychometric testing needs to be done carefully and with an appropriate level of provisionality because there is no psychometric test in the world. And I argue with people about this a lot, but hey, I'm the expert here today. There is no psychometric test that truly, truly defines the nature of who somebody is. So I would say that whenever you take a, a psychometric test, what it's really measuring is the person you think you ought and should be right now and the behaviors that you are probably exhibiting to the world that is asking you to take this test. Mm -hmm. Those behaviors are made up of a combination of your nature, your nurture and your choices you've made. So nature, I believe, is the hardwired personality that all of us are given by birth. That's Jungian psychology and I'll, I'll argue with anyone who disagrees with me. But nurture, you know, the external influences and environments which have shaped our behaviors at both an unconscious, a subconscious and a conscious level. So your upbringing, your, you know, your home life, your education, your successes, failures, gender, ethnicity, race, blah, blah, blah. All of those things shape the way we behave. And then every single one of us has also had choices by our age, John, we've made some good ones, the odd bad one, and hopefully a mixture in between. So any psychometric test has to be, for my mind, more provisional than a crude result will tell you. So I would say whenever you're using psychometric testing, even when I'm doing it with people, I go, see, this is a coat to try on, not a box to live in because people feel boxed by these things and they go, I'm not sure that captures who I am really. I don't want you to label me as that. So for me, um, it's, they're incredibly helpful at finding, helping people discover who they are at their best, but a little knowledge is always more dangerous than no knowledge. Yeah. And you'll be amazed how many amateurs there are out there who are alleged experts in psychometric testing, who are fundamentally, um, well let's just say they often end up doing more harm than good yeah okay well the results are in and they're, they're really quite interesting so half of you have never tried psychometric testing of the other half uh 88 if my math is correct found it useful and 12 percent didn't find it useful uh which i i think is really interesting and so based on what you've just said steve um, you can't, you, you can abuse psychometric testing and you can be led into abusing psychometric testing. I remember being in an organization where people would say stuff like, well, I can't do that because that's detail and I'm not a detail person. You know, yeah. Jung, Carl Jung has told me that I'm not a detail person. <laughs> so I, I can't do it. And, and I think the minute you hear something like that, you, you, you quickly backpedal and get somebody who really knows what they're talking about in, right? Yeah. Yeah. But in terms of building a team, mm. somebody uh, who's a leader of an organization and who may not have the experience that you have, is psychometric testing a good place to start? Yes, it is. But I always say um, use it on, use whatever you're thinking of using in your organization on your own team first. Yeah. So, um, sometimes it's easy to try and outsource culture to HR and I always think that's a particularly um, problematic process because in the end leaders define culture and if you're not prepared to live it then it will never become the culture and you end up with a lot of HR programs 
that end up basically being very successful but then failing because in the end they reach a point where everyone down below says well why isn't the senior team living these values yeah so for me i would say is be careful what you use but more importantly road test it first in a controlled environment where if it isn't life-giving and helpful for you and your team yeah. it will never be any more life-giving or helpful to the team below because you have to be at a champion whatever resource you use and in the end whichever one you do particularly with smes you want everyone to be using the same vocabulary and language one of the problems you find is you know flavor of the day you may find over the last six years we've used six psychometric tests and depending on when you arrive which one you do what you're really looking at is how do we create a common vocabulary and language that we can all use yeah. that actually begins to shape the way we actually engage with one another. And that's where, for me, you can't have ones which are too complex if you're going to then multiply them through a large organization because, or a small organization because it will cost too much. So for me, I say, hey, if I'm doing executive coaching or on a giant side, we'll use every psychometric we can. But actually, if you're going to create a vocabulary language that your team uses as shorthand and doesn't need an expensive expert, more importantly, the 50 people in your organization can also use, you have to find a way that it is simple without being simplistic. And that's usually where it falls down. Yeah. Okay. Great. So um, we've, we've not got that long left, Steve. So I want to move on to the next um, question. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it's about performance management mm. a lot of hr people on, on on the webinar and we've got a lot of business leaders on the webinar and you know um as a, a, a experienced person talking to um, hundreds and thousands of smes over the years i know that performance management often means an annual appraisal and uh, i know that lots of the uh, hr people listening will be you know tearing their hair out at the idea that the sum total of your performance management in a business is an annual appraisal. So I'm assuming, you know, that's, that's not what you would suggest. And just very briefly, what, mm. what should companies and leaders be looking at in terms of general big picture in terms of performance management in the, in the company? I'm not talking about, you know, uh, dealing with naughtiness. I'm talking about how do you manage um, mm. performance in a business? So for in terms of principles, I think that the, the move from effectively company hierarchies and structures are being torn down. So the, the classic industrial models of, you know, layers of supervisors, managers, we're really looking at flattening structures. Right. And I think the principle I would say is this, is that actually performance management and feedback needs to be little and often as regularly as possible, delivered by the person who is leading the team in which that person is actually in. So there's certain things that you can do from the center from an HR perspective, but in the end, the, the most valuable performance management, particularly for the millennial generation that increasingly representing the, the bulk of people in organizations, what they're looking for, I believe, is, is regular feedback, regular interaction, where you're managing performance as you go rather than seeing it as a nine box grid exercise when bonuses come up or whatever it is you've used. So the principle of devolution of performance management to the minimum unit of the organization, which again, I will argue is a team because a team is ultimately responsible for certain outcomes. And in the end, team leaders are usually responsible for the performance of their people. So that's the first principle I would say. I think the other is to be very careful because most performance management has been very subjective over the years. And that's the reason why people find it difficult. You know, it's like, well, how, how does it become fair? And that's where I would say is trying to find a metric which actually measures performance, which isn't, uh, I love going out and having a drink with you, John. So, you know, of course I'm going to enjoy being with you. It, I think that's the thing. People often felt that performance management was arbitrary, unfair, and really quite a secretive process. So in some ways, I think when they know that they have access to the person who is going to be measuring their performance, yeah. and from my perspective, the primary, one of the primary tasks of leaders in the new world is to be a coach more than a boss. Yeah. So actually, if you've got an issue with your performance, John, and I'm your team leader, yeah. it shouldn't be a huge surprise to you yeah. because we should have been talking about it and we should have been talking about 
what are your hopes for the future? What's career progression look like for you? Yeah. I should be being resourced by HR on the horizontal if that you have HR, but ultimately how do we equip our leaders to lead in that way? I think is the, the way forward. Okay. That's great. Um, I mean, you know, for what it's worth, my observation on that is it's a, it's a tremendously complex task yeah. managing, leading someone in that way. And uh, it requires a very high degree of emotional intelligence. It does. Um, and, and, and I presume really that means quite a lot of training for the people who are doing it. But we haven't got time to get into that right now. Um, so we'll move on to the sort of final question before we get into the Q&A session. Mm -hmm. uh, what is the single most important piece of advice you would give to a business leader of an SME company? I actually wrote this down, so it's not, um, it's not something which I, I said, if you have to do one thing, learn how to build a world-class team. Uh, there's nothing more important right now. And even all the, I think all the answers I've given to previous questions, I genuinely believe that the new world, team is the most important unit in a business not the talented individual and it's i mean it's fascinating to me that i think google took nearly 20 percent of their intake last year from high school not college university because they basically said we can teach people to code what we want to do is to train them from day one how to collaborate in teams yeah. rather than learn as an independent individual where you sit 1.5 meter apart in an example or a library and it's that change where the world's problems, that the issues that organizations are, are dealing with are more complex now than any individual, however clever they are, can actually solve. So team as the new unit of performance, and therefore for me, leadership or management fundamentally is about can you lead in and through and alongside your people rather than necessarily, well, I'm going to do it or, you know, um, often people get on with their siloed roles. So there we go. Short answer to a long question. Great. Okay. Well, thank you, Steve. That was really excellent. I've got some questions for you now. Good. Um, some of them, I think we've touched on, but I think probably, um, bear... at least I'll get rid of my, I prefer this slide, John, cause I'm not going to look at me for the next. <laughs> I've been looking at you. I've enjoyed it very much rather you than me. Okay, so um, this is a, a question from David Clay. He says, hi, Steve. The pressure that comes from both striving, thriving, or struggling, surviving can be intense on mental health. Mm. What are the ways you've learned to walk the daily walk of leadership, but holding the role lightly enough not to feel overly responsibly, becoming controlling, or becoming overwhelmed? Yes, can you give me the answer to that question, please? I wish I had a, a really great answer to that, David, because um, I, I think... I think the, the fundamental thing is you have to work on yourself first. So in the end, you're right, is if you're not healthy, it doesn't work. And some of us are like me, I'm a human doing who has to learn how to be a human being. Mercifully, a number of you on here will be human beings who, who in many ways, because of your being, you have to do some doing as well. And I think that fundamental principle, if you are someone who is a doer, an achiever, driven, task, all those things, a lot of your identity is wrapped up in the things you do. Therefore, when things are struggling, it's really difficult sometimes to separate my own worth and well-being from the performance of my team, my organization, my company. So you'll find that if a company fails, it's far harder for those of us like me whose identity is made up in the success of what I do to deal with it. Therefore, there will be greater pressure I put on myself and those around me when I fear that that may actually be a likelihood, because in the end, it's more about me. So having that ability to separate that I'm not purely defined by the task or job that I do for me is a constant challenge, yeah. but I have had to keep working at it because what I do is if not, I will drive myself and more importantly, I will drive others around me usually to a self-fulfilling prophecy of burnout because in the end, there are some battles that you simply cannot win. And some of you on the call, that's why I said earlier is there will be some businesses that it doesn't matter how amazing the leader is and how incredible the team is that you have. There will be certain battles you cannot win. And that's why that equilibrium between 
knowing that you are worth something because of who you are and the relationships of your life is as important as the task and your identity that's driven usually through the things you do. Incredibly difficult to do, but I, I'm aware of that. And I've been through <laughs> situations in the past where I wished I'd understood that actually failure with people is more long lasting and painful than failure in a business. Mm. However painful that process is losing your integrity to keep your business is never in my experience worth the cost of those things. And actually most, most of the failure in task in business and organization always looks worse when it's heading towards your front windscreen than it does in the rear view mirror. It's amazing how I've been through complete business failures, administration, liquidation, settling up debts, all those things. And what I'd say to you is that actually it always found a way to work out. The place where I've seen people struggle the most is when they actually lost connection with the relational dynamic of who they were because the brokenness of relationships stays with you a lot longer than particularly even the difficulties experienced in organizational team leadership. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Emma Carter's asked for recommendations on psychometric testing. So. <laughs> uh, Emma, um, ha having been a Jedi in Myers-Briggs for 17 years, um, uh, I really love that one. But what we did was realize you can't scale Myers-Briggs without a expert present. So three or four years ago, um, I created something called Five Voices, which is probably, um, it's hard to boast about your own thing, but you know, um, everyone who has used it has said, actually, this has proved to be the most sticky, most helpful vocabulary, which is simple enough that we can all use as a team but we don't have to have an expensive expert present interpreting the data. So um, that would be the one that I would recommend to everybody, but I would because I wrote the book and, and, and created the assessment. But, you know, things like even people like the US military now say this is the, they use it across every base that they have. So even whether you're a small company, a big company, um, I would at least say if you've never done it before and 50% of you hadn't, um, I, I would say at least I'll send you a free link later. You can try it out with your team. Um, you can use the giant platform for a month um, free of charge at the moment. But if you've never used it, five voices for me is the best. But then again, um, I did write it. So forgive me for being biased. If you've got a lot of money, I like Hogan. But Hogan is a little bit like the Emperor's New Clothes because it costs about 500 pounds to generate one report and you're usually then paying a huge amount of money for a very, very specialist executive coach to interpret it for you. But I personally found Hogan very insightful when someone has been helping me with it as a coach, but that would be the, the, the top end all the way down. So uh, let me just have a look through the last few questions in your mind, Steve. I mean, you just talked about the human, the human being and the human doing thing. And of course in our society, you know, financial success is, is a sort of, we use it as a key performance indicator, don't we? What mm. is success? I mean, what should we be aiming for? I mean, presuming just going for the biggest paycheck isn't necessarily going to lead to happiness. What is success? Gosh, now we're into ontological questions, John. Yes, um, you've, got, you've got two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the, I always say to people is there what begin with the end in mind. So there are no pockets in a shroud. And when you get to the end of your life and people are talking about the person you were at your funeral, very few of them will talk about how much money you left or how successful your business was. What they'll do is they'll talk about who you were and what you meant to them. And sometimes um, people can have what they say the I think it was Kobe said you can have your ladder up against the wrong wall for a long time in your life and realize you've climbed the wrong thing. So I say it's what do you want them to say? I always ask people, okay, in my mind, I have a, a vision I live for, which is I'm hoping I might get to about 85. Um, I've got a month left to go. Um, I know I'm going to die, but everyone who wants to can come and say goodbye. And actually, my question is, how many people have I been significant enough in their lives that who would actually take the time to come and say thank you? 
So for me, it's beginning with the end in mind. Everyone will have different metrics of success. Some of you may go, I want to leave X million for my kids and the foundation, whatever it might be. But I think it's really important you actually decide what does success look like for you? I'm a big fan of a musical called Hamilton. If you've not seen it, I, I would recommend it. And one of the lines and one of the songs says is who lives, who dies, who tells your story. And I often ask the question to me is, who do I want to tell my story and what story do I want them to tell? So I ask the question, what do I want Helen to say about me as a spouse, as a husband? What do I want the kids to say about me as a dad? What do I want my business partner? What do I want my people who work for me? What do I want my friends to say? So for me, I think if you can do the work of defining what success looks like for you, you're more likely to have a chance of at least aiming in the right direction and in Kobe's language, have your ladder up against the wall you actually want to climb rather than necessarily the one that sometimes we're almost bullied into thinking is the, the right answer because um, there's a certain amount of money which psychologists tell you much less than people realize above which it has no impact on your actual happiness and well-being. It's something like about 60,000 in the UK because once you're above that, in theory, you're only buying more or bigger. And though most of us think that's not a lot of money, there's quite a lot of research. I think HBR did some work on saying that actually there's more metrics that are more meaningful. So that's my, may not have been two minutes, but that's my attempt to give you at least an explaining of how I would define it. No, that's absolutely uh, fantastic. Um, Steve, thank you very much indeed. Uh, really uh, fascinating to listen to you and uh, great to watch your success and the success of Giant. And uh, no doubt we'll, we'll be staying in touch. Um, finally, if you like the content that my HR toolkit is providing, please do follow us on LinkedIn. Uh, we're, a, we, 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 we put out a lot of really well thought through content on LinkedIn. Please follow the company and, um, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And once again, thanks, Steve. I, I, I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Thanks, John. Thanks everybody. Thanks for tuning into this, my HR toolkit podcast more information and access to more of our HR and business resources for SMEs, head over to myhrtoolkit.com or find us on LinkedIn and Twitter.